0: Autumn Carcy. yes. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. So we uh, we met through Ivan.
1: We did. Yeah.
0: yeah. And um, I was always intrigued because Ivan always talked very highly of you. Um, and you're a woman in the industry, which is few and far between. Um, and can you go over how how did you meet Ivan?
1: So I was working on a facility in Hawaii, and I was flying back and forth um, about every other week. And I was in the Virgin Lounge at about 8 a.m. at LAX when Virgin Airlines was still around. And I looked across the bar sitting there, and it was um, you know, a guy with the Jungle Boy's hat and Jungle Boy's shirt. And then I was, I was working out of state for about eight years, so I didn't really keep a beat on what was going on in California. Um, but it was (laughs) Roach. And so I was like, you know, who is this guy? And I kind of signaled to him like, Hey, you know, and he comes over and I was like, are you with, you know, Jungle Boys? And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, what do you do? He's like, well, I build and design facilities and I'm a grower and, you know, what do you do? I had like a little cannabis leaf sticker on my laptop and I was like I build and design facilities and I used to be a grower (laughs) and so he's like great we should come check out our place sometime and I was like I would love to so exchange numbers um and I called him he called me back like three days later and was like yeah come down to to TLC and check it out and I was like okay cool and I was just wrapping up that Hawaii job and figuring out, you know, did I want to work in California again? And and I always lived there, but I worked out of state. So I went down to TLC for a tour, and I'm in, like, you know, grow tour clothes, like backpack. And
0: what year was like, this?
1: This was 2018, I want to say. It was right when Governor Brown just passed all the uh, AB 243, 247. Um And, and had enacted those into law. So I knew that there was legislation coming down whether or not Prop 64 was going to pass. Like, you know, we were getting framework around legal cannabis um, in relation to grows. So um, I went in for a tour and uh, walked into the conference room and there was about, you know, eight or nine people there. And they were like, okay, you're pitching like pitching, (laughs) like I came here. Was Ivan in the room? Ivan was in the room. Everyone was in the room. So kind of caught me off guard. That's heavy. Luckily I had my laptop there and everything. And, you know, I kind of spelled out what I did, which is this kind of architectural design firm that does construction management. We do licensing acquisitions. And so, um, went in for a tour and, and walked out with a job. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: that is, yeah, you, uh, You hit it perfectly. That was a good good trip to the airport.
1: It was a good trip to the airport. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Roach. <laughs>
0: yeah, you couldn't have ran into a cooler guy. You yeah. Know, Roach okay. is a savage. Absolutely. Uh, how did you get started in the cannabis industry?
1: Um, so I think I was like 2003. Uh, I was a young single mom trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to raise my kid. I was newly divorced, had no money. Um, and a group of my friends that all went to UC Berkeley kind of had these, um, you know, the old school octagon hydroponics things in their garages with the old school tube lighting. And each of them had one of these octagons and it was actually putting them through college. Um, and they didn't have families with money. And so I was like, you know, what is, what is this about? I want to get into this, started asking questions. And they were like, no, 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 you don't want to do this. Girls do not grow. Doesn't happen. Don't know one female grower. <laughs> I know a lot of
0: female growers, and they are always better growers than yeah. men. I'm it,
1: sorry. Yeah. In 2003, there was not many. Probably in Northern California, Mendocino, but in Oakland, Bay Area, it was very dangerous. Yeah. So um, I think, in a sense, they were trying to protect me, and I you know, have a habit of if somebody tells me no, I kind of go full force in that direction, so... I uh my brother started growing at the same time um I begged him for about six months to put me on and you know I think I bugged him enough and one day he drove up to my house with a tray of you know like a 52 plug train wreck clones and six analog ballasts and dropped them on my doorstep and said good luck that's awesome
0: (laughs) you started just like us
1: yes I think he thought I'd be out of business in six months
0: you just crushed
1: it that didn't happen
0: um, how do you feel about the cannabis industry back then and then the cannabis industry we're in today?
1: You know, um, I, I read this book a while back. It's called Snakes in Suits, and it's written by two psychiatrists. And what they did was they took um, individuals that were kind of in this criminal insane asylum, And then they took individuals that ran Fortune 500 companies and were CEOs of Wall Street. Um, And what they noticed between the two classes when they did these um, psychoanalysis on them is that the Wall Street guys actually scored much higher in sociopathic and psychopathic tendencies than the guys in the criminal insane asylum. And the only difference between the two classes were what side of the tracks they grew up on. And so... As I go down this road, and I've been doing this for 18 years, I think, you know, the suits have gotten nicer and the tongues have gotten sharper, but you're still dealing with the same individuals. And that's not to say that everyone that has money is bad, but it's a very important character study of driven people. And we have a lot of driven people in our industry from the legacy market. We have a lot of driven people coming into this from the outside. So,
0: Yeah, they're in it for the... <clears throat> they're in it for the wrong reasons, you Yeah, know? just money focus, And I think that, um, when you see these businesses that are driving just towards one financial goal, that, you know, you miss out on the team and the quality of the finished product, um, and, and what, and where we kind of all came from and what we believe in. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's a few that, that do do really well in this industry, but, I always say there's much easier ways to make money than dealing with the licensing and the banking issues. And, you know, there there's there's so many easier ways to make money. So I always tell somebody that's getting into this business, like, don't do it for the money. Do it because you absolutely love it and you have no other choice. Yeah, yeah,
0: 100%. Um, you're currently working on tax reform. I am. <laughs> I saw the post you did yesterday on Instagram Um, was it less taxes, more
1: retail, less taxes, more retail. That's, that's the drum that I'm beating right now.
0: (laughs) Um, can you tell me what you're doing with California tax reform?
1: Um, yeah, that's the save the California cannabis coalition, which is kind of a group of business owners that are working hard for tax reform. Um, I'm working on multiple different levels of tax reform, Um, So one thing that everybody can do that's very easy is go to Save the California Cannabis um, and uh, fill out the petition and sign it. It's one click. Um, If we get enough signatures, um, you know, I think that'll create movement at the state level. Um, And we're also working on another resolution called Resolution 21 with a group of attorneys that I work with and um, some other lobbyists and organizations. And what that resolution is, is a simple two-page resolution that spells out that right now we're having a mass exodus of legacy growers that don't have corporate money leaving the market. And it's noticed first on a local level. So if you take this resolution to your board of supervisors um, or to city council, then it basically, they can vote on it. It doesn't affect their taxes at all, and it pushes on Gavin Newsom, and the state legislators to lower our taxes. And so we've gotten that passed in um, Sonoma, Mendocino, Lake County, uh, Monterey, Santa Cruz, Humboldt, uh, Del Rio, Calaveras. There's a few more. So you're,
0: you're passing all this on a local level right now?
1: On a local level, so yeah. And then if we work on San Francisco... Um, and Los Angeles, and you get all of these jurisdictions that have heavy grow communities and their board of supervisors is going, hey, we have a problem here, our tax revenue is down, people can't afford to pay local taxes, the market has dropped, then I think you will enact change. And I think it's more impactful than you know a bunch of business owners going, hey, we'd like to pay lower taxes because that doesn't always, you know.
0: <laughs> There's only two ways that they could change the tax would be with legislature Mm -hmm. and uh which is a two-thirds vote on legislature and then also either a vote by the people is that that's correct right or
1: yeah and they at the state level they can vote to suspend it until it goes back to a vote
0: okay so they can suspend it Mm -hmm. um your team the team that you're working with on on the tax reform who who's that comprised of
1: Um, So that is Sarah Bodner um, with Golden State Affairs. She's fantastic. Um, She's a government relations professional and, um, you know, community minded. And then Joe Rogoway's law firm. And um, I'm working with the LCCA, which is the Lake County Cannabis Alliance. So kind of all three of those groups have come together to create this resolution um, to pass around to the different jurisdictions.
0: That's awesome that you guys are putting work into it. You know, we're seeing it uh, across the board. You know, I talk to Ivan all the time and uh, he's having a hard time. So if he's having a hard time, other people are dying.
1: Yeah, and that's important and, and what, they're, what they're seeing is, you know, it, it is a, a cry from small farmers because they're going out of business first, but some of the hugest companies right now in our state are failing. It is across the board. Right now, cannabis is not profitable in California. And until things change, um, the black market is going to continue to thrive.
0: Do you feel that Prop 64 has helped increase the black market?
1: Absolutely. Exponentially.
0: (laughs) How has it done that?
1: Um, You know, by by giving local municipalities the reign over whether or not to allow retail has really hurt the market. Um, and by creating so much red tape around this legislative process that somebody that's been growing for 20 years may not have the know-how to get through to get to the other side. Um, when I first came back to California, like I passed 64 licenses for friends of mine that were you know, just trying to get to the other side but didn't have the wherewithal to create the documentation needed to do so, and it varies by jurisdiction, and varies at the state level. But it's it's a lot of compliance. It's a lot of paperwork, and um, and it's unnecessary. I mean, I, I've worked with like NASA scientists that tell me it's easier to get plutonium out of Russia than <laughs> to get a cannabis license. I believe it in
0: California. I believe it for sure.
1: Yeah, you yeah. know,
0: environmental impact. I mean, I mean, it's nonstop.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: That's why I'm in Nevada. Yeah. Is so the last the last time I talked to Ivan, he was telling me for every eight thousand lights, there's one storefront in California.
1: I mean, he would know that statistic. Um, I know that only sixty eight percent of the state has retail, and that's a huge problem because most of the jurisdictions voted against it, and so that's one major thing we have to change in order for this market to thrive. And for patients to have access, you know, that's, it's so important. There's, you know, some people that have to drive three cities away to get clean-tested cannabis that are, you know, suffering from cancer or epilepsy or any, you know, numerous types of illness that cannabis heals. So, um, yeah, patient access is important. Um, Retail is important.
0: So given that storefronts, Uh, local council has the ability to not open up storefronts you're saying i think before this was like 63 percent uh of california doesn't have storefronts um 68 68 okay 68 percent how do you think california can promote local council to approve storefronts i mean there's such a disconnect there what what do they like what does california do
1: So that's part of the um, Save the California Cannabis Coalition, and part of that uh, petition is to change that um, in law. And so that it takes, it either makes the jurisdictions create their own process or fall back on a state process if they don't do it by a certain date.
0: So taking the control out of the local council Mm -hmm. to be able to make it a California and open up storefronts.
1: Will you offer them the control? But if they don't enact it, then it defaults to the state rules and regulations.
0: What's the current cannabis tax
1: by the time it hits the consumer right now in California? Uh, it's hard to say because prices have fallen so far. And if you're talking, and that's that's one thing about the the biggest tax hurdle that we face right now and they're all hurdles you get charged from the nursery to the grow the grow to the distro the distro to the retail and then all of the local taxes in between um
0: i've, so, I've heard 50 percent by the time it hits the consumer
1: yeah I, th- I think 70 now too and if if you're talking about you know 167 a pound or something like that with the new increase um you know it for an outdoor crop That just hit 500, and I'm hearing even three. Um, There's a lot of people that were tilling their whole crops into the ground this year because it wasn't profitable to cultivate. So, to tax somebody the same amount, whether it's outdoor, greenhouse, or indoor, when your cogs are wildly different, like if you take outdoor, for example, and I'm just going to throw some back of the napkin numbers. I know that, you know, there's so much variation, but if you take, you know, outdoor at 25 to 200 a pound if you're in smart pots you're bringing in soil you're on the side of the hill you have logistical factors of getting materials in and out versus if you're on ag land with heavy equipment and you know row crop style your cogs are going to be wildly different if you're in a greenhouse your variations based on efficiency could be between 250 450 dollars a pound depending on where that greenhouse is what the efficiency is built in um, you know, an indoor I've seen commonly, you know, anywhere from 500, if you're super efficient to, you know, nine or even 1100. So yep. it, and then, you know, your cost when it hits the shelf is, is telling. So, I mean, you could say a hundred percent for some farmers right now.
0: Yeah. How, on, on some of the greenhouse, you know, there's some really large greenhouses in um, Los Los Alamos, Central California. Mm -hmm. How are they, isn't there a cap on 22,000? I mean, how are they going? There's like acreage of greenhouse that's cultivating cannabis. I mean, you're in licensing. Like, how are they pulling that off?
1: So the state was supposed to limit with Prop 64, and this is why a lot of small farmers voted for it. They were supposed to limit canopy at an acre. Then they came back last- For for outdoor, right? For everything. For everything, okay. Yeah. and then they came back and they said, uh, last minute, okay, you can stack as many ten thousand square foot licenses as you want. So the licensing is actually unlimited here. Um, you just stack as many tens as you want, and on the on the provisional side. Now they just changed that recently, but that's the way it was. And then the state measures your your bed size, and then local municipalities have different. You know canopy caps based on population, um, the agricultural area that they have, and then some counties are unlimited, and some counties are very restrictive. So uh, the the local municipalities can always be more restrictive than the state, but they can't be less.
0: So they just recently changed it. Would they change it too?
1: So uh, my understanding of the recent legislation is that any new license applying for a provisional annuals are different has to, um, cannot have more than an acre on any contiguous parcels owned by the same owner. But anything that was previously in existence is okay and then has to go into an annual process. But for new license holders, you can't apply for more than an acre on any contiguous parcel with more than one owner on a provisional license. They're supposed to release a Acre license. Once they merged, everything merged into the DCC. I think that's what they're working on right now. Is is this, um, you know, large cultivation license that hasn't been released yet? To kind of, because <laughs> it's it's a pain to get all these ten thousand square foots and then apply for them. It's it's absolutely ridiculous and a lot of paperwork. So they need to merge those into you know one larger license for people that have, you know, multiple acres and it would make the process and the pipeline a lot easier at the DCC if they're going to continue with the no cap.
0: Yeah, where, where do you stand on that, cap or no cap?
1: So, you know, I'm, I'm indifferent. I want, I want to find a way for small farmers to stay in business. It's, it's one of our big fights. I also feel like, you know, for someone like Jungle Boys, for example, they can't outsource to another grower to grow that product. So they should be allowed to grow what they need to to meet their market share that they've already created based on the quality assurance, the genetics and everything else that they've built throughout the years. Um, So, you know, to tell them, hey, you can only grow 10,000 square feet like wouldn't work.
0: Yeah. No, there's that fine line of, you know, taking a greenhouse that's been growing poinsettias or some other flower for Home Depot, Mm -hmm. filling acres and acres. Yeah. With cannabis, yeah, flooding the market, yeah, and then uh, another cultivator like Jungle Boys that started in, you know, small and slowly grew up to where they have a large demand and they need to fill that demand, yeah, and they're 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 filling a the demand when the other cultivator is just cultivating cannabis,
1: right? And so you shouldn't be like, okay, you have to cut back your canopy and you got to buy from. This guy over here. I don't. I don't believe that that's right. But I believe that some kind of understanding and control on the market um, is is necessary because otherwise we're just gonna flood the market and cannabis will continue to be worth less than you know. And and this has happened in other states. Like we have Colorado's legislation for the most part, and we saw what happened there. And it took three years to kind of peak dive and then level out again, Oregon and Washington, same thing. Anywhere where you have these kind of free, anyone can get through to the other side markets and it's not a monopoly market like the East Coast has, you um, you run into this problem. And in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, it kind of settles out and has like a at least a baseline pricing in about three years. But the difference is those states have like, you know, four or five million people we're 40 million people so it's a much bigger problem to say that it's going to be resolved by any date um so yeah
0: yeah no we're definitely seeing seeing it on on the pricing um what did you think about newsom's budget address about a month ago where he brought up cannabis tax reform do you think there's hope there
1: i do i i think that he um I think that he sees what's happening and I think he has to respond to it because um, it's coming from all sides. And then they're seeing it at the state tax level too. They're the ones seeing people not pull licenses the following year and not be able to pay their taxes and going into bankruptcy. So that, um, it has to be addressed. Uh, my thought is if it comes from the legislators, it's it's easier to address in a real way um, than you know, a bunch of growers getting up and and crying and yelling at him, (laughs) (laughs) which is, which is also happening. But, um, you know, I think there's some very organized groups and, and this is a part of like the industry has to work together on this. When you have a lot of these different activist groups that are fighting and different companies that want this or that, if we don't all come together, it's going to get messy and we're going to get bad policy. So, um, you know, I think sticking with one group and then reading what that group is backing because there's some some bills that are coming out that don't make a lot of sense and push the taxes down the line to the retail or to the excise and they're still getting the same amount they're just going to lower cultivation we need tax reform across the board and um starting with cultivation tax so I, I think he will make a change. Um, I, I think just, he has to. I just think the approach is up to us and we have to get really organized and work together on it. Yeah.
0: Just real quick, a recap. Um, what are the three main things with tax you're looking for? Um, the three bullet points, and where do you want to see those on tax for California tax?
1: Less taxes, more retail and um, strong working groups to come together and write policy that makes sense, that's sensible, sustainable policy um, to address the state with experience instead of letting them write our policy for us. We have to draft it for them Yeah, because they don't understand this industry.
0: With pricing in California, where do you see it getting this year and how bad is it?
1: I mean, it's bad it's bad I know a lot of farmers just sitting on their product hoping you know it's it's gonna be worth more in a few months I think this is the new normal I don't think this is a a recession that's just happening right now I think that it will level out and it'll probably come back up a little bit because unfortunately a lot of people are gonna go out of business which is gonna create more of a shortage and then prices will rise again um, but yeah, I. It's gonna be interesting.
0: What pricing are you seeing in your network of people for for indoor?
1: For indoor,
0: high quality indoor. What are you seeing?
1: Oh, there's such a variation. I mean, eleven hundred uh, to twenty-two hundred, probably depending on who you are, and what it is. Obviously, yeah. if you have a brand and a name, it's gonna be worth a lot more. Branding is really important and, and it's the differentiator that I think keeps businesses alive while everything levels out because in the flood, people don't realize what's good product and what's bad product. They're just like, oh, I can get that over there for this. That's what it's worth. Not realizing that you know, this outdoor is better than that outdoor substantially or this greenhouse is better than that greenhouse. So it's really the branding that becomes your differentiator, um, of quality and you have to have quality to back the brand, but those two have to work together.
0: Yeah. It's communicating to the market that this is the quality. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've personally seen a national price decline, even in Michigan. I mean, Mm. mass. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a national price decline. Why do you think that is?
1: I mean, I think like anything, it's going to come down to an agricultural product. We saw it in hemp. And, um, you know, like I've worked in Hawaii substantially and they actually ship in 80% or 70% of the um, fruits and vegetables from South America and from other places. So because it's cheaper to produce there when an employee's $200 a month, you're never going to compete with that. So then they're shipping them on freighters, you know, creating more of a carbon footprint just to bring it to Hawaii that has four growing seasons and probably one of the most optimal growing climates on the planet to grow fruits and vegetables. So it's, you know, um, it's definitely going in the direction direction of agriculture. And I think with federal legalization pending, when that comes online, then you're going to see that kind of boom and bust situation
0: with federal legalization coming on online. Do you think that cannabis cannabis is going to be able to be sold state to state, or do you think it's going to be remain in the borders of the state?
1: I think that it will still become a state's rights issue. And that there's a lot of talk about that right now. Um, And, and it's, It's kind of how they treat alcohol, too. Like, there are certain states that are, you know, just distribute in New Jersey or just distribute in in certain states for for their liquor licenses. And they have those very locked down, especially on the East Coast or dry states. Um, You see a lot of that. So I think the states can always be more restrictive than the federal legalization. So I don't think it'll necessarily be like open borders hemp because you have all these different monopoly markets, especially on the East Coast. They're gonna to want to protect their local markets, and so I think it'll be. I don't think it's just gonna be a wild free for all when they when they come up with federal legalization. Um, but I would would worry about import export from other countries at rock bottom prices for, you know, subpar product.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that you you'd assume that there would be interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. I I don't think so. I think it's it's so complicated and maybe. 10, 15 years after federal legalization, but I mean you never know.
1: Yeah, I mean Canada did this and it took them, you know, and they're they're still working on it, but it it took them a while just to form the policy at the if we think state licensing is hard, try federal licensing. I mean it's a nightmare. I remember in the beginning of Canada Health Canada came out with this policy in the very beginning where, you know, they were really trying to go medically focused and put it through the pharmacies and things like that. Um, But they would have third party, it was proposed, they did away with it, I believe. They'd have third party auditors come to your facility and take a sample. If it didn't pass, you'd have to burn the whole room in an on-site incinerator that you would legally have to put in. You'd have to put in DEA-level vaults. I mean, it was just the compliance, and still is, insane um, in Canada, so. You see that with a lot of the federal standards, um, which if they don't look at it as agriculture, which is what it is, and they look at it as a commercial product, that's where it can get tricky.
0: Yeah, I was up at... Uh, I went and visited Arroya when they first started mm-hmm. in Calgary. Yeah. I was friends with the, the head cultivator. His name is Chris Mayerson. Yeah. And uh, met him at Coachella. He invited me up, You know, did a tour. But they were like... He, Everything they had to quarantine before it came in the facility, he was mm-hmm. showing me all the regulation. I was like, how do you even grow weed here?
1: Yeah. This is insane. Like, It, it takes the fun out of growing. <laughs> I mean, it takes I mean, everything
0: out of growing. It's just, I was boggled. Yeah. You know, it took like three weeks to get a light inside the facility. I had to sit in like a garage area. It made no sense at all.
1: Yeah. If you want to move a piece of equipment from one end of the room to the other, you need like a stack of paperwork this big in three months. Yeah. It's crazy.
0: It's insane. Yeah. Now, you, you were talking about um, national import importing, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if there's not going to be state-to-state commerce, how is a state going to allow product coming in from a different country? Like,
1: Well, the states will decide. So if, if federal comes into play, I'm assuming they'll leave it up to the states to go, okay, we're, you know, Texas. We don't want huge grows here. We're going to buy everything from California, but we're going to allow retail or you know, we're on the East Coast and we can only grow indoors, but we need you know some more biomass product to put into extraction methodologies or whatever, and we wanna get a cheaper cog on that, they might buy sun grown from the Emerald Triangle. Um, so it, it'll take a while, but I think it'll be up to the states, and each state will pop off individually based on what their needs are. But I don't think the monopoly markets will open their doors right away it'll be the overproduction states trying to push into the states that haven't been established yet. Yeah,
0: exactly. Do you think at that point with federal legalization and and possible import importing of cannabis, Mexico would be a threat?
1: Yeah. 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 Um cuz the climate there is really good. Um they have in in some parts of it. They they have, you know, somewhat of a dry climate. I worked in Colombia for about a year and a half and um, with hemp and that's a very difficult climate. Um, it's very high humidity and the, and very high heat. And so once you get past a certain humidity and heat point, you can't really pull that down without a multi-million dollar greenhouse and then at that point you're kind of at an indoor cog anyway. So why do it? Um, so I've, I've seen you know properties with just thousands of acres of failure. In Colombia, um, Mexico. I don't. I don't think will be the same. I think it's. It's a little drier. It's a little more temperate, um, and and genetics will grow well there.
0: Labor is also really low. Workforce. That's the
1: key. Yeah, that's the key.
0: And the workforce is hungry and hardworking. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I think that would be a major, major threat.
1: Although keep- I read an article that a lot of people were. Pulling like indoor product across the border i think right now it's happening
0: yeah right now it's happening just because cannabis is in in the united states is so cheap or in california especially
1: well and good too yeah there's not i can't imagine there's a ton of indoor grows in mexico because you know but I, i don't know um but yeah they want like Really good, like quality product. That's yep. indoor, so it's moving the opposite way.
0: <laughs> One of the biggest indoor cultivators in Mexico. Um, we have a pretty good relationship with Holy Cream. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, he's he's good people, and yeah. um, he grows some fire. Nice. So, but he's always sold out. Yeah. So I yeah, mean, it it moves. Yeah. Where do you see the price of cannabis? Well, it's currently February right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, where do you see the price of cannabis? at the end of this year in California? Mm. You see it lower or you see it leveling off?
1: I see it lower because as businesses get distressed um, and they're not looking to next year to meet their margins, they're gonna sell for below their cost of production.
0: So you see it getting worse before it gets better? Yes. Absolutely. But it has to get better because if it doesn't get better, we can't even.
1: It does because the, the people that will, won't be able to afford to cultivate next year, um, one of two things will happen. There will be less product because there will be less cultivators or a whole new group of people will come in and take their place and run for a while until the numbers don't make sense. So, I mean, anyone looking at a cannabis business in California, I would say run your numbers and then go you know, 30 to 50% below what you think.
0: I don't even know how that's possible.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, not. <laughs> It's not possible. It's not possible.
0: <laughs> yeah. To, we saw this in 2018. I was, uh, you know, I owned a hydro shop at the time and mm-hmm. saw about a 40% downturn in customers walking in the door at the hydro store.
1: In 18? In 18.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. 17 was a big year. Yeah. You know, I did really well in 17. Yep. And um, 2018 came along and literally overnight, 40% down in wow. sales. So it's it's substantial. When it hits, it hits quick.
1: Hmm. And do you think that's because people just got out because they thought the, you the know, stakes pr- were going to be higher, or
0: I think price per pound back then we were selling pounds for like thirteen to fifteen hundred for indoor,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that's that's why.
1: Oh yeah, you yeah. know,
0: um, it started to creep up a little bit. We mm-hmm. started to get to that twenty-two to twenty-two number. Yeah, and then COVID hit everybody got an influx of cash mm-hmm. and then the you know price went crazy for a while hmm. so it's uh, it's been an interesting ride for sure i think you know one of the reasons could be nas- nationally why we're seeing the price of cannabis you know lower is because i think people just have less money
1: yeah and i think there's a lot of overproduction um oklahoma southern oregon there's all these places that are growing you know under the guise of hemp and um it's getting into other markets flooding other markets and at the end of the day the country can only consume so much cannabis um i I don't i don't think it's a money thing necessarily too i don't think the recession has really hit us or if it's going to because they printed so much money during covid um like construction is booming right now. Yeah, um, you know all these other industries. Real estate is booming. Um, so I don't necessarily know it's it's that people have less money. I think there's just a lot more product.
0: So I, I assume that because um, retail store uh, traffic is down. You know, on okay. the retail store level. Yeah. Nation. Uh, you know, uh, California wide. I don't know about nationwide, but I'm I'm friends with uh, yeah a few with cookies and, and a few other mm-hmm. people and, and that's that's really the, the story.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the taxes have a lot to do with that and there's a lot of, you know, especially places like Los Angeles where, you know, 80% of the stores are not licensed retails and so you have stores that are are not charging the tax, not charging the tax and then the guys trying to play by the rules, you know, where's the consumer going to go at the end of the day? They just want, you know, that extract or that brand of cannabis and and they'll go anywhere to get it if it's half price and you can't blame them for that you know yeah
0: well it's pretty interesting and um it's a little scary but riding it out and we'll just see how 2020 the end of 22 ends up in 23 yeah um going into i want to go into cultivo and and you know that company because you have a you have a long list of companies you're you're <laughs> like me on steroids you know you got a lot going on you're you busy um with with cultivo um what's the story behind that company and how did you start doing layouts
1: so cultivo's a design build firm um we started about uh, roughly eight or nine years ago Um, right about the time Canada came online with their federally legalized process. I'm not exactly sure what year that was, but, um, you know, I was growing and, um, had some friends go to jail, had some pretty crazy scares and, um, you know, I'd been growing for 10 years. So I was just looking for something else to do in the industry and, um, actually quit when it hit 3000 a pound. I was like, I'm out of (laughs) here. so um you know closed up shop moved up north and was just kind of like thinking about what my next step was going to be and um I got that in- was your
0: number three thousand a pound yeah, you're
1: out I know oh my gosh I feel like such a jerk right now yeah spoiled <laughs> super
0: spoiled we were all spoiled I was selling packs at fifty five, six.
1: that's what in the beginning yes yeah. in the beginning I, I was hitting those numbers too um and then uh you know, and, and we were on a much smaller scale, too. We didn't have, like, 1,000 light grows didn't exist. 500 light grows didn't exist. If, you know, if you had 100 lights or 200 lights, you were the biggest person in town. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, y- you know, was just looking for a change and, and kind of wanted to get out of the industry. And I got a phone call. And we used to build grows all over Los Angeles for... Um, different uh dispensaries and basically I had a little working construction crew that would go spot to spot and just set everything up um and so I got a call from this uh this consulting company and they were working with Ed Rosenthal and they were like we you know want you to come to Canada to look at this facility which was um proposed as the largest in the world at the time and so I went up there thinking like, well, I really want to meet Ed Rosenthal. You know, I've read all of his books and things like that, but I have nothing to offer these people. And I enter the room and it's, you know, 14 of the most decorated architects and engineers in the countries that build all the hospitals and airports and everything else. And, um, you know, I'm I'm expecting to get laughed out of the room at any moment. And uh, I start reviewing their plan sets and they've got crazy, chilling towers specced and just an egregious amount of money and they do what engineers do, which is when they don't know something, over-engineer it by 50%. Well, that directly affects your cogs. And so I said, you know, give us just the HVAC piece. Let me work on that. And then I went back to my guys that I've worked with with forever um, and we rewrote their entire HVAC plan in like 48 hours and saved them a couple million bucks. And so that... Um, I worked on that project for a while. Um, Health Canada ultimately held it up, so it never opened. I think it changed hands. But um, that kind of started the path to the design build firm, and I just my phone started ringing from different license holders that were building things. And it was at a time where no, um, no design build firms existed around cannabis. I think we were definitely one of the first And um, it was just a very interesting time. I started the company with $10,000 and uh, no funding, and it it worked.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. It's good that you had the backbone of The Garage Grows to really understand have a deeper understanding of AC and lighting and PPFD and and really flow.
1: Yeah, they didn't understand set points. They didn't understand even the most basic um, fundamentals of growing, and so... Um, you know, through that, we realized that there was a need in in the industry, and more and more grows were going to come online, and that you could, through the design process, really be that difference between $500 and $900 a pound, which is a huge difference. Um, and so, engineers, I love them, I work with a lot of them, but they love to over-engineer stuff, especially if it's exciting and they haven't done it before. They have a lot of ideas that they want to throw in there, and and a point that they want to get to so my job is kind of it it doesn't have to be expensive to be effective and so sometimes you just really have to rein people in on their super creative ideas and bring it back to the basics because you know we've grown fire quality in our garages and in, in with a lot less money and a lot less infrastructure I've seen amazing product come out of trap grows and i've seen some of the worst product come out of the nicest facilities i've ever seen i'm sure you've seen the same thing absolutely (laughs) um,
0: are you guys doing are you guys doing just layout services
1: um so we we do a couple different things and it's kind of switched since COVID. i used to have a lot of uh, everything in-house um now we sub out the architecture and the um the mechanical portions. Um, And we work closely with them. We do have an in-house architect and a CAD designer, but we sub out a lot of the stamps to firms that are uh, licensed in like 30 different states or 20 different states so that they can go in there and and put their stamp on it. Um, And then uh, we usually walk the process through construction management because what I noticed was you could have a perfect plan, but once you give it to a general contractor and come back in at the end, it's a completely different story. So um, we kind of like to walk the process all the way through from start to finish, all the way down to the commissioning of the HVAC and irrigation and all of that.
0: Having permit process nationwide is not an easy task.
1: No. No, that's, that's,
0: <laughs> that is big. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think people realize how big that is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, it's mm-hmm.
0: with Demeter, you know, we just offer... Uh, with the meter designs, we just offer irrigation layout, and yeah. we were looking at doing something similar to what you're doing. Yeah. And as soon as we started down looking at it, we we're
1: like, "No, nah, we're cool." Like, <laughs> it's a lot of work, and it's it's fulfilling and it's great. It's it's not a definitely not a get rich quick no, it's not scenario. It's no. um, architecture and design is 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 not that, especially for these facilities, because they change so many times throughout the process. I think what you guys do is really great because it 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 suits that need of um, gives you a complete supply list and often the people that struggle the most like a general contractor knows how to put up walls HVAC I'll know how to hang HVAC but this specialized irrigation stuff a lot of them even the most commercial plumbers have never seen it before. And then you don't necessarily have to have a plan through the building department, depending on what it is. If it's all above grade like this, you don't have to have a stamp and take it through and get it permit, it's above grade. Um, certain things like sump pumps in the ground and and your water recirculation systems, um, anything below grade, but it's such a gift to give that to a plumber and be like, here's your exact supply list. Here's all your line lengths. Like it's going to save that project so much time in getting that facility up and commissioned. And I don't know anyone else that's doing that right now. So
0: yeah, no, it's, it's definitely game changing. I think we created it just by visiting many, many grows and seeing many, many bad irrigation designs mm-hmm. and very inefficient irrigation designs Yeah, and um, very hard to run. Mm-hmm. irrigation designs and what what we really do is just uh make designs that are easy to easy to operate. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's that's the main thing cuz you you can't have your business relying on an expert to run your irrigation control. Like you need the guy that's you know pull a guy out of the trim room, give him 30 minutes and teach him how to run the irrigation. That's pretty much what Demeter does.
1: Yeah. No, and I remember, you know, running down that road with Ivan in the very beginning we were looking at every system, like Argus, Priva, like all these complicated systems. I remember going to um, Howellings Tomato Farm in uh, Ventura County, and it's like, you know, multi-acre greenhouse, Venlo, under glass, beautiful facility. And there was one one guy in there, and they're in like four states, and he's like the master controls of all the irrigation. He's like, I'm running four states from my motherboard right now, and I'm thinking like, that's great, but what if you get in a car accident on the way to the grow? Like, what do you do? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, you need to be able to teach people how to run this system and have redundancy and backup built in and keep it simple. Or, you know, like, you could have that one bad day where something happens to the main guy that just knows everything. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And when you're trying to do that on multiple facilities across multiple states, there's only so much talent. Yeah. You know. So we gotta make it easy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were looking at some really complicated systems and I remember like the guys from NetFim came in and I like first of all I didn't believe the price and then I didn't believe how simple it was and I was like, okay, something's gonna malfunction here, but it's really good components. I've used them ever since. Um and Dositron in some facilities, depending on how they're scaled and how many lights they have. But Really just keeping that process super simple is, is key.
0: Yeah. Do you guys offer consulting services with Kativa?
1: No. Um, we used to in the past. We don't anymore. Um, as it went through, consultants often get a really bad name in this industry. So what we did was, and the reason for that, I think, is... Um, oftentimes consultants double dip. So they'll align themselves with all the manufacturers and they'll take incentives off the products they sell and they'll charge the client. So they're double dipping in both ponds. And I find usually like the most highly incentivized products work, you know, don't always work the best. And so, you know, uh, so we we don't take any... um, money from any third party vendor or service. So I don't double dip and I represent the client and I charge the client a certain amount of money and then represent their best interest, do a competitive bidding process, um, work through the architectural designs. And so that's different based on the level of work that we do, but the client knows that I'm not double dipping in, in everybody else's pocket. So it's very common in construction. It's called an owner's rep. So we're more of an owner's rep service than a consultant.
0: That uh, I'm I'm a witness to that. Yeah, you know, I've tried many times to give you money for deals on Lux Lighting that you've <laughs> turned me taken down. Taken it. <laughs> You're like, hey, no, we don't do that.
1: You can buy me a steak dinner. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what? So, what's the difference between an owner's rep and a consultant?
1: Uh, owner's rep doesn't incentivize any third party product or service, and consultants often do.
0: But also, cannab- not all the time. But-, but protects against the cannabis tax. What's that? I mean owner's rep owners reps. it seems like what you are yes. doing is you protect the client, your client yeah. mm-hmm. against the cannabis taxing that that often yeah. happens.
1: And the one that goes in and, and tries to negotiate all the products and services or find what's already existing in the regular business world without the cannabis tax. Um, so from everything from, you know, insulated metal panels or floor covering or whatever. Um, you have to really do a particular bidding process because once that contractor enters your facility and sees it's a cannabis facility, yep, price goes up 3x. Yeah. So you really have to run those numbers and get, you know, five, sometimes seven bids in any given situation to make sure that you're not paying the cultivation tax. And even firms that like we've used for a long time, like they'll kind of see the money in it and then their prices will skyrocket. Like, um, I love actually DPS panels because I, I went and priced their bids out from bids I had three years ago and they're still in alignment with that, like five or 10% increase over the years with, with inflation that naturally happens in the trades. But, um, for the most part, they're very
0: reasonable. Yeah. Why they're one of the biggest in the industry probably, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, what are some of the different markets that you've worked in with? and with Cultivo, have you done national and interna- international?
1: Yeah, so Colombia was under Cultivo Canada. Um, we've probably worked in over 20 U.S. states. Um, so yeah, we, we worked, like I said, I worked out of state for eight years um, until California created a legitimate process where we could walk plans through a building department. Um, so yeah, we've worked in all different types of environments.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges you see with cultivations scaling?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, usually this isn't always the case, but this is often the case. Um, there will be an investor and there will be a cultivator. And you're trying to walk that fine line of what the cultivator needs to function efficiently and get his job done and what the investor needs the budget and the returns and to not make it too complicated so that if something happens to that cultivator um, that somebody else can come and stand in those shoes like living soil is great but you know an indoor scaled thousand light aquaponics facility maybe there's three people in the country that can run that so you know you suddenly get 10 million dollars as a cultivator and they're like what do you need to be successful and you get these crazy wacky ideas and you have to like kind of just bring it back to basics and go like we need a facility that anyone can function in ideas are cool and we can do r&d stuff in one or two rooms but um there's certain things that just don't work when scaling and I always say it's like trying to turn a liquor store into a Costco. Like you wouldn't scale that the same way. It would be completely different equipment. It would be completely different rules. Um, so trying to walk that fine line between investment capital and return on investment and what the cultivator needs to be successful and really rock out a room and do a great job.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like running organics and complex irrigation systems at scale right? indoors.
1: Or bringing soil into, like, an ISO 7 or 8 facility. Like, you're going to automatically void your standards. So, um, for me, and we've done it all. Like, at the end of the day, I always say, like, I'll give my advice, but we'll build what people ultimately want to build. And we've built crazy things that I would never want to operate in. But the, um, I think the baseline standard for, you know, if you're 500 lights or above, like, Get in Rockwell. <laughs> I know a lot of organics guys will hate me for saying that, but I think it has its place, and I have outdoor farms also. So there I feel like organics really has a place because you're trying to create an immunity within your plants to defend against the outside environment and pests and pathogens that are natu- naturally going to be coming in all the time. And it's much easier to, you know, feed through irrigation systems, and we have large-scale equipments and larger tubing and things like that. An indoor facility, um, you know, we've seen indoor facilities that have functioned for years without a single introduction of pests or pathogens, so you don't necessarily need all the organic amendments. And if anything, you're bringing in stuff from the outside, cocos an inert media, but how many times have you seen it spike to four or 500, especially with supply shortages and they're pulling stuff. That's not necessarily supposed to be cocoa medium into facilities. There's a lot of inconsistencies there and more particulate matter breeds, pests and pathogens. Yeah. It's just the baseline clean room one one standards. So, when you have, you know, a clean room facility, an indoor facility, I just feel like you should be able to eat off the floors and it should be super clean. That means a truly inert media like rock wool, um, and soil, cocoa, particulate, bugs, thrips. You know, you're you're gonna get that introduction and you won't be able to get rid of it, not legally anyway. And and that's the goal, right? To yeah, you have less room for error. Yeah. <laughs> Less yeah. room for
0: error with 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 organics and organic media, a repeatability challenge, um, and a pathogen challenge, and it, it gets very difficult. I mean, you're saying 500 lights. I'm I I'd be scared to run it. You know over two. Yeah, I was gonna say 200 <laughs> lights. Yeah, you know, yeah. 200 it's lights is like it's it's just scary. You know, yeah. you just got so much room for error. So yeah. Um,
1: it's hard enough, you know. Yeah. What I mean, growing and growing successfully is hard enough, and there's yeah. so many different factors. So, I feel like everything has its place. Again, I love living soil and organics. Outdoor it takes three years to build it. You know, it takes mm-hmm. a long time, and it takes agronomists and people with it, it, an innate understanding. Um, or somebody that's been doing it a very long time because you could have issues with E. coli and other things that that could be very dangerous potentially with organics. So yeah, um, yeah whatever you do, you just have to be know what you're doing and scaling up for the first time is not the place to try new things um, or stick with the old things that don't work, you know
0: Yeah, absolutely. You also own a or start have a company called Gene Finders Originals right?
1: Yeah. So we have, um, we have farms up North and they're all under the umbrella of Alchemy 29. Uh, Gene Finder Originals is the brand that we're launching in the next 18 months. Um, it's based, uh, mainly off of my, uh, my business partner, Shored Brooks, uh, who has been cultivating and breeding genetics for probably the better part of 30 years. And he's worked in, um, He's got some crazy stories. He's worked in, like, Africa for the governments, cultivating for them, Mexico for governments back in, like, you know, um, the 90s and things like that. So he's Dutch. So he was kind of the person they sent around to do all these, like, test plots for for different companies at a very large scale very early in the game. So he's um, an incredible wealth of knowledge when it comes to breeding and genetics. And the idea behind gene finders is to um, come up with a pathway for other breeders to license their genetics with us and they would then get a royalty on whatever is grown and sold of those genetics similar to how like the music industry works and things like that so um, we would partner with uh, different brands that are already in existence on collabs we would also partner with smaller breeders that maybe nobody knows their name but they're They've got incredible genetics that they've been working on for twenty years. So, um, just trying to kind of create a pathway uh, to work with breeders and give them credit for their work.
0: So, Cultivo is kind of partners with Gene Finders. Cultivo is you know laying it out and separate. then separate, separate, separate. Yeah. So, how how are you getting those clients for Gene Finders, and is Cultivo recommending genetics to cultivators?
1: No, so Cultivo's just the design-build portion. We do a little bit of genetic recommendation for our clients that Short helps with. Um, And, you know, once we build this amazing clean room-type facility, um, you know, how do you get clean genetics through the door and tissue culture and seeds and things like that so that we don't want to build these incredible facilities and then they go down the street to their buddy that has thrips and spider mites and everything else and then bring those into the new facility so um really just getting things fired up in a way that is not going to be problematic uh, for the facility but yeah everything else is a completely separate company under alchemy 29 which is our new our new baby
0: nice nice um are you taking on new clients with cultivo right now
1: not at the moment we are (laughs) a little busy um we're we're finishing up with the clients that we do have and finishing up some facilities what happens is projects with cultivo are typically anywhere from you know nine months to two years depending on the regulatory environment the jurisdiction that we're working in if it's a ground up versus a ti um So I used to take around eight projects at a time and max out somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 square feet between those eight projects. I'd run everything in parallel and then I would end those projects at relatively about the same time. So be these like long two-year processes. So right now we're not taking on or starting anything new. We're just finishing our last round. I don't know if that will change in the future. It really depends on California licensing and what happens with these other businesses. Um, but for the time being, no.
0: Before we move on, I have one more question to ask you about Cultivo. Um, do, you, do you have a percentage based on flour, veg, and dry room that you use as a formula for any facility? Is there like a percentage basis of flour versus veg?
1: Um, yeah, I bet 30% on our veg typically okay. whatever's and and there's some scalability in that and sometimes people are doing double stack so there's some variables but like my flat back of the napkin number is about 30 percent, and i think it's one of the huge mistakes that you probably see a lot as well where people just under spec their veg and their dry rooms and then you go into these facilities that are gigantic and they've got one dry room yeah. or they've got you know a tiny veg and um And it doesn't work. So I like to allow a lot of edge space. I like room to move in my facilities because, and this is something I I constantly have to work with investors on because as they're adding numbers through their pro forma, they're like, oh, if we shrink our hallway and we shrink this up, we can add, you know, a hundred more lights. See, I'm a better designer. And it's like, okay, but your employees are not going to want to work in there. And if people don't want to work in your facility, your product's going to suffer. And so I think there's something to be said for, you know, large hallways being able to move equipment up and down, um, you know, aisles that work depending on if someone my size is in there or you got a six foot four, two hundred and eighty pound dude. Um, so yeah, making a facility that's comfortable for your employees to work in is is absolutely key, even if it costs you space.
0: What about cycles, for example? In some of my facilities, I'll build one veg, three flowers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I'll come down every three weeks. Yep. And if I'm adding, or if I'm gonna do an addition, I can't just build another flower because that'll mess up my veg. Yeah. Um. So I'll add three flowers and another veg, or a larger veg, mm-hmm. and that way I'm coming down every week and a half. Yeah. So do you have like a cycle when you're building out these facilities at Kativo? that you try to stick with on number of flower rooms to the veg so they can run the business more as a process and a workflow?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, kind of you max out at around five rooms or something like that per one veg room. And then, you know, sometimes if you're planning a very large facility, You just want to allocate that space and veg. And a lot of ways that people build is, you know, they'll be in flower while they're still under construction and they'll put up pony walls and things like that. Yeah. Happens all the time. Uh Uh (laughs) I don't love it, but Uh, I I understand it from a financial standpoint. Um, Sometimes it's just what you have to do. And so I think that, um, you know, building out your veg to the full capacity of the facility Day one, just like you would your offices, is key. And then add your flour and then roll them in as you as you go through that process of scaling your facility. But I always say design the entire facility first, even if you're scaling.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with asking the right questions to the client. Because if they have a two-week veg versus a three-week veg, mm-hmm. the layout could be different.
1: Absolutely. You know, because yep.
0: yep. the the flow is different as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we always put together like these charts of how things are going to cycle through the facilities. And we really try to build facilities from the inside out with the plant counts. And um, what I notice is that, yeah, but once I get in there and start operating, I always tell them those charts are going to change. You're going to get used to this facility. And it takes a year to a year and a half to really make that thing function like a well-oiled machine. Um, So it's really just a guideline. You know, and you can do your best with the planning process, but different genetics come in with different, like at the end of the day, it's farming. Yeah. It needs what it needs, right? Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. If you grow a MAC one versus, you know, mm-hmm. an OG, that MAC one's going to take twice as long to veg through yeah. the OG. So yeah. there's another question, right?
1: I mean, we're genetic. Yeah. yeah. You got so many variables
0: <laughs> that you got to pay attention to, and that only comes with experience. Yeah. Yeah. you know.
1: So, and I think allocating those rooms for those different varietals makes sense too, you know. You yeah. have your your 8, 9 or 10 week rooms depending on on what you're running.
0: Yeah, every time I go over to Jungle Boys always, you know, their facilities, it's always 9 to 10 rooms with one large veg and they're mm-hmm. doing a 2 week veg yeah. um, and I think they have three stages of veg mm-hmm. in each bedroom. One bedroom yeah. but three stages. Yeah. So um, they're coming down usually every week,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, depending on that. So they're everything is in a week process. They're cutting clones every week. They're transplanting every week. They're taking down every week, and they're yeah. moving plants and cleaning rooms every week. So mm-hmm. it kind of breaks up the workload, which is why in you know, a fifty thousand square foot building with you know eight hundred lights, you'll see eleven employees at yeah. Jungle Boys.
1: Yeah, and which the thing that's great about that too is that they can take down one of their rooms in like a day, maybe two. Like mm-hmm. take it down, clean it, flip it, you're back in again. Where if you have a 500 or 1,000 light, some of these massive facilities that have these giant rooms, I just don't know how they get it done. You've got 20 guys in there harvesting and then trying to clean that place. It's, it's so much easier. I don't like to go above 120 lights per room. And I think my sweet spot personally is like 75.
0: Yeah. Yeah. that's exactly where ivan's at 64 lights are a room right now i think i yeah. think they might have up to like 72 or 78 yeah. in florida 64
1: was the standard because yeah. the, the rooms were already built in um i think tlc was you know it had like the yeah. typical 40 by 40 or something um but yeah 64 lights is a great one 74 75 is 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 good but you know when clients really want to push it i'll be like okay 120 like no more <laughs> Yeah, don't do it cause goes and be able to take it down and and maintenance it and replace it in in a day or two
0: Yeah, it's like how important cultivo is and understanding because it'll make or break your business mm-hmm. with the wrong layout yeah you've already built it game over construction's yeah. done and now you got to run this yeah. business based on this terrible layout
1: yeah and the great thing about working with ivan and those guys was that um a lot of times when I've worked with big money investors, like you'll have to write three white papers to get a light into that facility. And you just go, this makes sense, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And and the layouts, like, I mean, they did all their own layouts. We put it on paper um, because when you've been doing it so long, you just know these things, right? So you're like, no, I don't want to go above 100 lights or I don't want to go above this because this, this, and this happens where, you know, when you're dealing with um, – the big money guys. It takes a lot longer to get anything done. You have to ask 12 people if you can change a thermostat. And so, yeah, no. that's how they're able to build so fast. Like every time you turn around, they've completed a project. And that's why it's that experience behind it that um, is key for getting facilities up and running. Yeah,
0: and I've just I've watched them. They're just getting better. You yeah, know, the facility layouts getting better. The the irrigation designs getting better. Yeah. I mean they're just improving nonstop.
1: Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's you fun can to go to the bathroom and come back, and they have three buildings built. It's yeah. amazing.
0: All right, so you also have a farm that you're working on in Lake County, right?
1: I do, yep.
0: Um, tell us about the cultivation operation you have planned for Lake County.
1: So it's kind of um, in a bit of a shift right now, just with the way that the market is. Um, We have three multi-acre farms in Lake County on three different properties, which is a really good growing climate, Um, difficult permitting process, but really good growing climate. Um, And then we have a 67,000 square foot processing facility that's going to specialize in drying and solventless manufacturing. Um, We're also hoping to work with other small farmers that maybe can't get through the legislative process and red tape and give them a place to grow and a place to process without having to have $10 million in capital. Um, so, yeah, we are determining right now how much we want to grow next year, and we're probably going to start very conservative. Um, and then we also do white labeling for other brands within our, our solventless processing facility. Now,
0: you you plan on doing mixed-like greenhouse, outdoor, or indoor?
1: Right now, we're all outdoor. I think that um, depending on how California stabilizes, will determine whether or not we build greenhouses here.
0: What what challenges do you currently face with these with these projects?
1: Um, so, we want to go organic probably by year three. So, just amending the soil, um, getting it optimal for cultivation, uh, getting the right genetics in an, in a new climate. I think that. The difference we always say between indoor and outdoor is that um, indoor you are God, and outdoors you have to deal with God. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got fires. We have you know climate change. We have all these other aspects that we can only, at the end of the day, as farmers, pick the best genetics, um, the best nutrients, fertilizers, and amend the soil properly. Um, so it's it's exciting and it's nerve wracking and it's all of those those things that make this industry worth doing um but yeah so we're we're gearing these farms online it's been a tough uh regulatory process i don't think the planning department of lake was ready for the influx of the amount of applications they were going to have and so they're they're understaffed we applied i think in 2020 in december of 2020 and we're still going through that process so um, outdoors, especially when you have to deal with sequa, it's a lot of environmental reports and um, you know biology reports, all kinds of things that you need just to you know farm. <laughs>
0: Ge- geographically, what's the what's the climate like in Lake County?
1: Um, so it gets very hot in the summertime. You know, it can get over a hundred, uh, but your humidity is like really low. Like. 20 30 percent probably Mm -hmm. we have three different farms and they're all very different climates so i'm excited to see which genetics we can put at all of these different farms and how they acclimate to the environment around them so that's going to be fun to kind of that's going to be a challenge in itself yeah but i think ultimately we don't face the challenges that you have on the central coast with overspray of pesticide because there's no other agriculture around any of our farms um, you don't face that coastal fog and moisture like Santa Cruz faces and the Central Coast faces, and even Mendocino, um, that's right on that coastline. So, I think it's a really optimal uh, place to grow cannabis.
0: You're you're growing in the you're growing in the ground or you're growing in
1: pots. Um, it depends on the permitting process. So, you're grading. Season kind of overlaps with your cultivation season, so it depends how, uh, on which farms do we want to miss a season to go in the ground. Um, we have these kind of long linear troughs from Israel that we may use for year one on a smaller scale until we can get our grading done um, to go into the ground.
0: You're so. Can any brand? Without a license, just uh, somebody wants to create a brand. Can they come to your Lake County Farms and Alchemy 29? Since you pretty much have a seed to sell um, company, can anybody just come to you and create a
1: brand? I think there's some legality around that question that I'm not sure of. I think you have to have an existing licensed brand. Um But you can, like if you were going to cultivate under our licenses, we could onboard, um, you know, employees and they could work under our umbrella potentially. Um, But I'm not, uh, I think it's more of a legal question. I'm not sure the answer to it. If just anybody can walk in off the street and create a brand, I don't know the answer to that.
0: I mean, you'd assume they, they would be able to, given that you own the farm. Yeah. So you're cultivating the cannabis. Yeah then they go to alchemy 29 yeah where they're drying it mm-hmm. you're packaging it and you own a distribution there yeah so, i think
1: where it comes into play is the money going back to that individual through the track and trace process and then you have profits basically going back to the brand I, I'm not yeah. sure. Now it's there's hard. A, there's that an issue. It's go. writing that check, yeah. like everything else up into that point. But I don't know. I'll ask yeah. my attorney. <laughs> there it is. That's the. It's the money. Yeah, it's the it's, money problem. That's yeah. that's the hang up. Mm-hmm.
0: I could see that for sure. Yeah. What what in house brands are you guys working with right now on launching?
1: Um, right now, we're just getting our our equipment up and commissioned and going through the licensing process. So we're definitely in talks with numerous different brands, but I'm not ready to announce any partnerships just yet
0: with with alchemy 29 you guys are offering dry services for california cultivators so if a cultivator has a garden in a certain region they can transport it to your facility alchemy 29 Mm -hmm. and dry it there
1: yep
0: and uh, manufacture it extract it package it And you can distribute it from from there at the same point.
1: That's correct. Yeah, so what I noticed, um, especially in Northern California, is everyone built out large-scale cultivations with no drying space. Or the drying space that they had was in hoop houses or in barns that weren't climate controlled. And I noticed where that's a lot of where the degradation of outdoor product came from. So I thought... What if I use my background of building indoor facilities and created the same climate control that we have in our indoor facilities, but for an outdoor crop? And so we're building out about 50,000 square feet of dry facility right now. Um, So we can actually go to the farms, um, either pick it up in a blast freezer and bring it back and freeze it, or we can dry it for flower product.
0: Is anybody doing this? I, I haven't seen it.
1: Uh, there's a couple companies, um, on the central coast, nobody in our region and nobody in Northern California that I've, I've seen things like it, but not the amount of climate control that we're putting into it. Um, and then there's a couple companies on the, uh, on the central coast. Uh, there's a company that we work closely with called Stacks that's doing it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think it's really important and, um, we'll set, a standard between really good quality outdoor product and, you know, something that was dried in a hoop house is obviously going to be different.
0: What kind of uh, manufacturing and processing are you going to do? You're going to do, um, you know, BHO, rosin, you know, what, where?
1: Solventless. Um, So we're type six and we're using the Whistler equipment from Canada And my thought is, like, if you can scale solventless, um, you've really done um, something that hasn't been done before. Like, I feel like BHO, CO2, these things have been scaled. And there's a lot of labs all over the place. So I really wanted to specialize in one thing that we could do really, really well. Um, So we have the Whistler machine coming from Canada, the WT2000, which is the largest Solventless processing uh, machine that I've seen that somebody hasn't built their themselves out of brewery equipment, which does happen. Um, but I think Whistler's just put together this amazing piece of equipment. Um, there's only two of them in California, and uh, I think Cresco has one, and then we're going to be getting the other. And what we're going to do with that is not, you know, go full force and try to increase our margins, but offer. The other farmers that we work with a sustainable way to process right now processing facilities you know have a large part in killing small farmers because they're at 70% like you know on a toll which is crazy so yeah. um, we're using we've spent about 3.5 million in just processing equipment and we're using that to really bring down the margins and hopefully help people stay in business
0: do you have your pricing structure between Ah, uh, the Lake County Farm and Alchemy already set out on costs to produce or you know what you're charging the client for those services.
1: We're getting that worked out right now. Um, we've got to do some test runs and commissioning on the equipment, and obviously there's there's variables when it comes to manufacturing. Farming's a pretty much a set standard. We know our our price per pound on on farming typically. Uh, there's always variables and there's always bad years, but I think we can speculate pretty good on that. The manufacturing, we're, we're just getting those margins worked out now.
0: Now, with Alchemy29, how far out are you taking clients geographically in California? Is there a certain, I mean, are you taking clients from Southern California? or
1: We would, and I've heard of, you know, um, clients in, santa cruz area taking their stuff all the way to desert hot springs to dry it so if it's worth it for you to bring it to us we have our capacity obviously fifty thousand square feet um but uh yeah we would we would take clients as far out as as they needed to come as long as it was sustainable for them to transfer that's awesome
0: that's cool you're definitely a hustler you know i mean cultivo alchemy 29 Smugglers, which is a cannabis brand that you have coming down the pipeline. Yep. Gene Finders Original. Yep. Um, you're Savage. So thank you. Good job. How so are you? <laughs> <laughs> we all we like to work hard. You yeah. Know, and do you know, just try to try to promote good business practices for the industry and help people be successful. Absolutely. You know, I think that's what it's all about. Um where can people go? support you on the California tax? Cause I really want to get behind that. I think Athena is going to get behind that. I know Ivan's going to get behind that, but, but you know, as we finish, where, where can, where can people go to support to donate and what can they do?
1: So if you are, um, an operator in any jurisdiction and, uh, you can contact me through either my website, um, www.cultivoinc.com, C-U-L-T-I-V-O-I-N-C. Um, And you can contact me directly there, and I'll get you the resolution. It's boilerplate. You fill it out with, you know, your board of supervisors' names, and then you just give it to the board of supervisors, write a cover letter stating the urgency that the industry needs this, and get it put on the agenda at a local board of supervisors city council meeting. Um, So you can contact me directly about that. Um, And then www.savecaliforniacannabis.com. You can go there and sign the petition with one click. You can also donate through that site. We've done everything um, as a grassroots effort at at this point in time. Um, So we don't have a particular place to take donations. This was all kind of a bootstrapped initiative that we did out of of need of being operators. Um, I believe the Save the California Cannabis Coalition will formalize um their uh their structure and then that will be a good um a good one to back so it's kind of in its nascent stage right now um but definitely you know stay tuned the website and all of that is coming so
0: you know really appreciate what you're doing with the california tax reform you have a lot on your plate and this is just adding to it putting together the team you're not making money from this this is, you're doing this for free, <laughs> yes, you know. So, yes. so we really appreciate. I know I can talk on behalf of the cannabis industry when I say we really appreciate you and what you're doing for the state of California on cannabis. So, yeah. thank you very much, and I appreciate your time coming on the show. Thank you for
1: having me. It's great being here. Good job. Awesome. Right. Thanks.